Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. There were columns of soldiers trying to get onto the small boats. A chalhalabir, that's a more frightening experience I've had. 25 yards, ramp going down, now. They did anything to get a couple of days sick. They just put the finger on the line and let one of the lads hit it with a hammer. We hurled ourselves upon one another with the theory that afterwards we could not understand. Yeah, we crash-landed into fail. Imagine the shock when the pick clangs against steel. You wonder if you've started the clock ticking. <laughs> Fighting Through Podcast. Great unpublished history. Who was Leonard Schroeder? And how did he write himself into the history books on D-Day? Turns out he was destined to play a crucial role in the first wave of Allied landings on Utah Beach. Welcome to Season 3 of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton, and today we're talking about the very first men to storm the Nazi-controlled defences of what had become known as Fortress Europe. The great Allied fleet destined for Utah Beach had sailed through the night, and now, three hours before dawn on the 6th of June, it lay at anchor just a few miles from the Normandy coast. It had pulled off the most spectacular conjuring trick in history. The fleet's 865 vessels had got within striking distance of Nazi-occupied France without raising any suspicions. To one impressionable young lieutenant, Ross Olsen, who was aboard USS Nevada, it felt as if they were sneaking up on the enemy. This was indeed the case. The Germans were as yet unprepared for the beach landings that were now only a couple of hours away. Now hear this! Stand by all troops! The cry could be heard through the darkness as amplified voices played through the ship's loudspeakers. Within seconds, there was frenetic activity as boat hands began lowering the landing craft into the water. For one 25-year-old American captain, this was the moment he'd been awaiting for almost three years. Leonard Schroeder was in command of F Company of the 8th Infantry, with five landing craft that each contained 32 men. The boats were to land on the beach in a V formation, with Schroeder's boat in the middle of the V. His men were in the vanguard of the invasion of occupied Europe. If all went to plan, they would be the first to splash through the surf and storm the Nazis' coastal defences. Leonard Schroeder was a bulldozer of a man with a thick-set face and a pronounced nose. He was known as Moose, a likeable, no-nonsense team player with big hands and a big heart. He'd pushed his men hard, leading them through mock landings and using live ammunition. Before boarding his landing craft, Schroeder had a chat with his battalion commander, Carlton McNeely. Well, Moose, this is it. Give him hell. They slapped each other on the back, but both men then choked up as emotion got the better of them. Each one knew that they might be dead within a few hours. 
Boarding the landing craft was difficult. In near darkness, the men had to clamber down rope netting while carrying everything they'd need for the next few days. Backpack, weapons, food and radios. The task of guiding them to shore fell to Howard van der Beek, who we met in an earlier Unknown History podcast. He'd been warned of his responsibilities by Brigadier General Teddy Roosevelt, the only high-ranking general scheduled to land in the first wave on D-Day. Well, my boy, he said to van der Beek, my life is now in your hands. So were the lives of the 620 men scheduled to land in the opening minutes of the invasion. Just a few minutes later, van der Beek's little craft pushed off into the damp night. When he looked to the rear, he could see the shadows of the ten landing craft packed with the men of E Company and F Company. Further away were many more landing craft. Van der Beek's flotilla was just the first wave. It would be followed by hundreds of vessels laden with jeeps, tanks and armoured vehicles, as well as 21,000 troops of the 4th Infantry Division. Van der Beek was studying the distant shoreline when wave after wave of bombers cut through the sky. As they crossed the coastline, they dumped their high explosives onto the German bunkers. No one had ever seen anything quite like it. The heavens seemed to open, said one, spilling a million stars on the coastline before us, each one spattering luminous tentacle-like branches of flame in every direction. The sun had just risen at 5.58am, but it was a gloomy dawn. Van der Beek guided the giant flotilla to within 500 yards of the coast. He felt desperately sorry for the men in the landing craft. Some were using helmets to bail out seawater. Others, suffering from acute seasickness, were vomiting over the sides. Most, however, stood pressed together, motionless, chilled by fear and cold. In the bleak haze of dawn, the first wave of landing craft approached the shore in V formation, exactly as planned. Some of the craft got stuck on sandbars. Others were almost swamped in the surf. Leonard Schroeder's landing craft had fared better than most. Leading from the front of the V, it had made it all the way to the shore. The underside scoured the shingle, then crunched to an abrupt halt. For God's sake, get off! The ramp was shoved downwards and Schroeder jumped into the waist-deep water. He was followed by his men who surged through the waves, dodging mines and barbed wire. Schroeder was in the lead. There was small arms fire. His sights were fixed on the low sea wall, which offered some sort of shelter. The water grew shallower, the sand underfoot firmer. A few more paces and Schroeder hit the beach. He had just made history. He was the first Allied soldier to land from the sea. Got on! We're on French soil! The air was filled with grit. To one young soldier, it was an overwhelming experience. Bombs, shells, rockets whooshing overhead, ack-ack from the German positions. An awesome display. Schroeder was raked with fire that skimmed his head and splashed into the sea. He led his lads in a spirited dash across 400 yards of sand. It was not easy, for their clothes were sodden and acted like a dragnet. They eventually reached the low sea wall, where they had a refuge of sorts. In just a couple of minutes, Schroeder's 150 men of F Company were ashore, with only a few men down. Off to the right, Schroeder could just make out the men of E Company storming ashore under the leadership of Howard Lees. Among them was Teddy Roosevelt, panting heavily and feeling every one of his 58 years. Further along the beach came C Company, many of whom had shaved their heads like mohawks. They yelled like Indians as they ran up the beach. It felt better arriving in a blaze of noise. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. It didn't take long to realise that something was seriously wrong. According to the maps and models used in training, they should have landed close to a windmill and earthen structure known as Mud Fort. But here, there were no landmarks at all. Leonard Schroeder was puzzled, as was Captain Robert Christen of C Company. Damn it, Captain, said one of Christen's officers. There's no mud fort down there. Roosevelt took a quick scout around the dunes and found a house by the sea wall where none should have been. He then crawled onto a higher dune and saw a windmill in the far distance. Only now did the terrible truth sink in. The ferocious swell had pushed them a mile to the south of their intended landing. This presented a potentially disastrous setback. In their months of training, they'd focused all their energies on learning how to capture Causeway 3, one of the four raised tracks that led inland across the flooded meadows behind the sand dunes. But they'd actually landed at Causeway 2, a mile to the south. This meant that none of their planned objectives could be undertaken. It also meant that all the successive waves, along with the tanks, bulldozers and jeeps, would also land in the wrong place. Adaptability is everything in warfare. That was the constant refrain of Leonard Schroeder's commanding officer, Colonel James Van Fleet. He landed shortly after Schroeder and was immediately told that they were in the wrong place. He now had to weigh up what to do. Should we try to shift our entire landing force more than a mile down the beach and follow our original plan? He asked himself. Or should we proceed across the causeways immediately where we'd landed? The former option, to move the landing force, carried a clear danger. It would cause chaos for all the follow-up landings. But fighting from where they'd landed was also far from ideal. All their original objectives would be irrelevant and their targets would be completely different. Van Fleet had played a key role in training his men. Now he took a key role in leading them. Go straight in land, he shouted over the noise of exploding shells. We've caught the enemy at a weak point, so let's take advantage of it. Schroeder took the initiative, leading his men on an agonising belly crawl through the thick grass that covered the dunes. This was no man's land, and progress was slow, for the sand was tangled with barbed wire that had to be blown with specialist explosives. Schroeder's target was a German stronghold inside a farmhouse. As soon as his men were within range, they let rip with everything they had. To their amazement, the resistance crumpled in seconds. Most of the defenders were still clutching their heads from the pounding of naval shells. They surrendered to Schroeder, their hands up, looking terrified. They were even more terrified when they looked towards the beach, for the sight was little short of astounding. More than 60 landing craft had beached in the five minutes since H-hour, the moment when the first troops were set ashore, along with tanks and armoured vehicles. Schroeder now pushed on inland, killing two Germans who stood in his way. The gunfire increased in intensity as he pushed through a minefield, and he was hit in the arm by two bullets from a machine gun. He felt no pain, for he was numbed by shock. The blood was flowing, but I continued to lead my men through the minefield towards the village. 
As they advanced, they had no idea whether the American paratroopers landed in the night had captured their targets. One of the men could see troops up ahead, but couldn't tell if they were American or German. He waved a little orange flag, a pre-agreed identification flag, and an orange flag waved back. Soon after, two US paratroopers emerged from the undergrowth. Fourth Division? Yeah! The men smiled and shook hands, aware that this was truly an historic moment. Here on the windswept shores of Normandy, just inland from Utah Beach, the American seaborne and airborne assault teams had succeeded in linking up. The battle was far from over, and there would be many setbacks in the hours ahead. But the opening act of the invasion, on Utah Beach at least, had gone like clockwork. Hitler's forces were now on the defensive. This week's Unknown History Snippet is about the sensational killing of a senior German commander, Lieutenant General William Falley, in the hours before the beach landings. Lieutenant General Falley was travelling back to his command headquarters close to the Normandy coastline at around 4.30 in the morning. It was still dark, but the first light was streaking the sky. As his driver sped along the country roads, neither he nor the general had any idea that American paratroopers had been dropped into this very area. Nor did he have any idea that one group of airborne troops, led by a young paratrooper named Malcolm Brannan, were lying in wait, ready to attack any German staff car that happened to pass. Now, hearing the roar of an engine, these Americans prepared to attack, shooting at the car from all sides. Malcolm Brannan stood in the road and held up his hand at the oncoming vehicle, signalling for it to stop. To his alarm, the car came on faster, for the driver, Corporal Bauman, had sensed danger and slammed his foot hard on the pedal. But speed could do little to save him. All of us fired at the same time, as a dozen or more shots rang out, said Brannan. The car crashed into the nearby stone wall and the driver was thrown from the front seat of the car. Lieutenant General Falley had also been thrown from the vehicle, injured but alive. Brannan watched him crawl across the road in a desperate attempt to reach his Luger gun, which had been flung from its holster. The German saw Brannan hiding in the hedge. Don't kill! Don't kill! Brannan had a moment's reflection. I'm not a cold-hearted killer, I'm human, he said to himself, but if he gets that Luger, it's either him or me. He pulled the trigger and hit Fally directly in the forehead, killing him instantly. The blood spurted from his forehead like water in a fountain. When Brannan went over to the body, he found a name printed on the cap. It said Fally. Although he didn't know it, he just claimed the scalp of the first German general to be killed on D-Day. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be hearing the harrowing untold story of what really happened to the first wave of American troops to land on Omaha Beach. <laughs>